right, welcome back to the People of PS podcast. Um, I say this every time, in for a treat, in for a treat. One of the, I think one of the great unsung heroes of Presbyterian School with us today, Lois Geiger, who is the head of Early Childhood, is with us today. Lois, welcome. Thank you. All right, so softball question, give it to everybody. What's your five-minute autobiography? How do you find yourself sitting where you're sitting today? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so that's a, a good story. I had, when I was growing up, wanted to be a teacher, planned on being a teacher. In high school, I was the president of Texas Future Teachers of America at Allen High School. I was really into it. Went to college, totally had a different plan. Went off and majored in advertising, spent a couple years working in advertising, did not like it, and had to ask myself the question, if I could do anything I wanted, what would it be? And I wanted to teach, so I went back to school, started working on a master's degree in education. took a job teaching and have never looked back. Did you always envision yourself teaching little little kids? No, not necessarily. And interestingly, I had how I ended up at Presbyterian School. I was a parent at Presbyterian School before I worked here. And my children were in the early childhood division. I had my youngest at the time was had we had a two-year-old program back then the alphas and was a three day a week alpha and i decided i would start substituting i subbed a lot during that year when she when so both my kids were in school and Catherine hooper who was the head of early childhood at the time came to me at the end of the year because our Lori Delvidge at the time was having her first child and needed to be on maternity leave and Catherine asked if i would cover Lori's maternity leave and I said well I'd love to however Amelia is only in school three days a week so I can't do that and Catherine said oh she can come all five days (laughs) (laughs) so she was the the original uh, five day a week alpha and I came and substituted for Lori for the end of the school year as her um, maternity leaves up and then next year I came on the faculty working full-time that's crazy I did not realize that you were Lori's maternity son <laughs> I know isn't that, that was that would have been probably what f- uh, four or five years before I got here maybe how long have you been here this is my 19th year okay so, so 15 for that me, so. child of Lori's is a freshman in college freshman this in college. year that's crazy yeah. well and I remember not to get too far off but I remember Lori coming to talk to me when we moved over to Founders Hall just the the emotional ties to the black and white tile just having you know been been there for so long and you you were there basically the same amount of time so you did you go your first full-time year were you an alpha teacher were you a beta teacher I was an alpha teacher and then the next year there was an opening in beta and I moved into beta and found that I really loved three-year-olds and I know some people might find that absolutely entirely crazy but I just <laughs> found a, the age that I thought was so full of imagination and wonder and excitement and you can three-year-olds are interested in everything so that either it's really an opportunity as a teacher to see tremendous growth and then you can be very creative with what you teach kids so. well so that's a great segue into you know I, I think what's probably your singular passion which is uh, really the, the academic concept of play and I've learned so much from you about about that so you're you're teaching in your full-time teacher with three-year-olds was the philosophy that we now have around you know play-based learning in early childhood was that was that was that a part of early childhood then or has that evolved over time because I know it's it's so important to you yes so it has evolved over time certainly and 
I don't know that back then we were as focused and intentional about making sure that we were doing play-based instruction. And I think over time we have discovered through the research the value of a play-based approach. The time when I first started, we only had half day of school, you know, so it was just a very different different type of, of environment than what we have now. And it was, it was very rich in play. We did a lot of focus on literacy, um, the rice literacy program that we still have today. We did a lot of the storytelling and acting out and dramatization, which was great. Which was great. A lot of imaginative, imaginative play. Um, but I think truly embracing the philosophy of play-based education and understanding the why has something that is something that has evolved over time. And certainly for me, as I have seen it in action and really seen the benefits of play, and and I am one of these nerdy people who loves to read, you know, articles about play and, <laughs> and literacy. And so I have just kind of take, it, it is a passion of mine. And so I've taken the opportunity to really study it a lot on my own. And um, so let me, so let's dig in a little bit, because I think, you know, like with a lot of words that are relatively familiar in our own lexicon, you know, word like play, um, people can have a misconception about what that means in what is an academic setting. So can you, I mean, for the, <laughs> for the lay audience, no, we're not all nerds like you are reading about it. Play nerd. <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah, for people who aren't the play nerd, when you, when you talk about play in the, the context of the three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old classroom, like in the school, what does that mean? Sure. So there are different types of play. On On the one hand, there is play that is child-led and where the child is really, you know, on their own kind of dis- mission of discovery. And then there's teacher-led play. We have a combination of, of both that happens in our classrooms. And you can see that through the thematic units that are in the classrooms that the teachers have, have developed over time. And, you know, pre-K-3, they might be studying the rainforest. And so the teachers will design the entire room around the rainforest, they'll change the decor and whatnot. The, the, the imaginative play center will, will be evolved with all the different themes that they teach. And so the teachers are, it's, they're, they're kind of helping guide kids in a direction in terms of the theme of the play that they might hope that they will engage in. But then when the kids are in the dramatic play center or in the math center working, they, they are, they, they're under the umbrella of the theme. They might be engaging in an academic activity. It could be a math activity. It certainly could be sorting or categorizing or learning how to count. Now, you, if you're in the rainforest, you can do that with toucans or bananas or, you know, whatever a- application that might make sense. And um, in the Dramatic Play Center, they might be putting on different costumes, pretending to be different things. If the teachers are interested in having certain vocabulary developed, they might help, you know, guide the play so that they incor- the children will incorporate new vocabulary along with that. But the, so it, both of them are happening at the same time in the classroom. Does that kind of yeah, and so I, I think it's important for people to understand, like, this is like there's a good bit of academic work. And here I'm talking about like research by other play nerds like you, right? (laughs) That goes into developing units, developing lessons. And so where, you know, our parents may walk by, you know, whether they're prospective parents or current parents, and they may walk by and they just see kids in, you know, involved in play. There's a, there's a good bit of thought and planning that's gone into um, the, the work that they're doing right. in that context. Is that fair to say? 
I like to say that play a play-based curriculum curriculum isn't the absence of a curriculum. So I think sometimes that's the impression that people have that it's just con open-ended. There's no real context or framework that you're just letting the kids play freely. But there is context and framework and thought behind it. Often I say to parents, if their child comes home at the end of the day and they and the, you ask them what they did and they said that they played, I think that we've won because our teachers are pretty tricky and they made the child think that they just played all day, but they really did a lot of learning in, in the context of that play. The opportunity to have hands-on, actively engaged children, that's really where a lot of learning takes place. I, I, I know you've heard me talk in some of our admissions coffees about what's happening when you're learning in your brain is that you're moving information from your short-term memory into your long-term memory and the way that that process happens for a young child is through hands-on active engagement and that happens just naturally through play. So when you're just getting started here and you know you're like you said you were the maternity sub and then you found your way into the three-year-old classroom do you do you remember some moments I guess where like maybe even a little light bulb went off inside of your head and you realized oh wow this like this really is the appropriate paradigm for learning because you really have now devoted a career to to you know embracing and expanding that do you, is there a is there a aha moment or are there is there a, a particular you know student or year that you really that really yes. brings it to you <laughs> I don't know that's hard that's hard to to pinpoint um, it really when you're in the classroom with young children and you see it happening in the moment like you just realize because you can watch their expressions and their experience and you know they'll come back to you two or three days after you've had a lesson on something or read a story on something and they're making connections to their real life and their real world and and it, it blows your mind because sometimes you don't know in the moment what how that you know, wiring is going on in their brain but later on they pull out that knowledge and can apply it and there's so many children over the course of the years that I've taught that you can see them when the light bulb turns on for them and like, oh, remember when we read that book? Or now they're incorporating whatever stories that you've told into the stories and imaginative play that they're engaging in with their peers in the classroom. And so it's really fun to be a part of that journey with them. Well, I love, um, you know, uh, and especially with the last few graduating classes that we've had, because those were some of your last students in the classroom. You move from the classroom to the leadership role that you have now. And just you like with a big smile on your face and and looking at the eighth grader and remembering when he or she was in your classroom and and you know that that journey of discovery all right so let's pivot a little bit because you've already mentioned this um you know there's a there's a bit of a conversation going on in the education world around literacy these days and maybe some of our folks listening have you know heard some podcasts and you know the whole language and balanced literacy and phonics and all that. Um, so talk, because literacy is so important, and that is the um, sort of, it's sort of the um, the techniques that that emerge to do school, right? I mean, right. You, so much is, is in the print-rich environment. So talk about play and literacy or literacy inside of play. And if you want to talk a little bit about just sort of what's going on you know, in the the nerd world that you and I live in, <laughs> about about literacy. about literacy and just sort of um, how we how we sort of do that here sure. um, in in a play play based environment. 
And reading is this pivotal moment in a child's life. And I think as a parent, you can't wait for your child to just all to get it and to be able to start to read because reading is a skill that is the gateway to all other knowledge. And it happens over a trajectory and it's a, the trajectory is a little bit different for every child and when they're ready to engage with different aspects of it but it's it's developmental it begins the moment you bring your child home and you start talking to your child and singing to your child and teaching them rhyming words and playing games you're beginning to build oral language vocabulary for their child and at first it's for them all receptive it's just what they're hearing but you know that they are understanding it over time and you start to, as they get older and they start to respond and react and then they become able to express themselves and they get words and they have their own expressive oral language vocabulary. That right there is the beginning of learning how to read and taking that language that you are using and speaking and hearing and ultimately we're gonna learn how to read that language. I always tell parents when they're asking like, what can I do to help my child become a successful reader? And I say, read to them, absolutely read to them and let them you know, see you as a reader and have it surround them with a print-rich print world. We in early childhood, when they come to school here at three years old, we expose them to a lot of print. We expose them to a lot of oral language. We kind of cultivate their understanding that there is an alphabetic component to this language that we're speaking. The Rice Literacy Program that we have in early childhood that we've been doing for years is a really wonderful way for children to begin to understand that there's a written component to their oral language because they start to tell their teachers their stories and they watch their teachers write them down. And all of a sudden at some point in that process it clicks, oh, the words I'm saying, that's what you're writing on that page. And I can remember being in the classroom with children and they're writing and, and I'm writing down what they're saying and they're, they're getting excited about their story and it's just going on and on and on. And I'm like, wait, 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 I can't write as fast <laughs> as, your, as your imagination is. And that's another beauty of the Rice Literacy Program is because children, when they're learning how to read and learning how to write, often their imagination can't keep up with just the mechanics of learning how to write. So this frees them up from that aspect of it and allows them to just be creative and with the help of the teacher being able to dictate the story to the teacher. Um, and then we also in, in early childhood spend a lot of time playing around with um, phonemic awareness and I try to explain that. To, that's really the, the hearing the language that we're speaking, playing around with it, clapping out the syllables and changing around the beginning and the endings of the words and doing silly things and rhyming and those sorts of things. And it's getting comfortable playing around with the sounds of the language. Then we add in the layer of phonics and that is really tying the spoken language to its written component and understanding that there are sounds and letters that go together, that you blend the sounds, there are strategies that you can use when you look at words. You know, if you have words that end in AT, the at sound, how many consonants can you put in front of at to make different words? And you play around with making nonsense words with kids too, just so they get comfortable in, in that process. Um, you know, and all the while, while you're working on phonics and phonemic awareness and the vocabulary is still constantly in the background building. Every time you're engaging in a new activity or a new subject, you're learning vocabulary. Even we as adults are continuing to learn vocabulary and we engage in new experiences. Um, and then 
the fluency piece of it, just practice. The, you're practicing the phonics, you're learning how to decode, to crack the code of the written language, and, and eventually over time that translates into them starting to learn how to read. So you're not sounding out every sound and every syllable in the word, you're starting to begin to understand that letters make words, words make sentences, and so on. And, it, and you begin to have comprehension, which is our goal for yeah. reading in, in general. The controversy in the literacy world today is based on a lot of different philosophies. Really, there was a, a period in time where whole language was the approach and we really didn't spend a lot of time on phonics. You wanted children to just organically become readers and love reading, so we didn't want to bog them down with teaching them about how to decode. So that was one school of thought. The phonics-based approach was very, very um, methodical and intentional, and it turns out ultimately that we've discovered through brain research that that is really how how we learn how to read is through an approach of phonics. And then there's a balanced literacy approach that was trying to do, bo do both and, and appeal to both. Um, during the pandemic, parents, when they were at home, and this is, you know, parents in, in big public school systems in New York and California at home where their children didn't go to school at all for a long time, and they were at home trying to teach their children how to read, and they discovered, oh my goodness, this this balanced literacy approach, there's, they're, they're not learning how to read. And so that created the opportunity to sort of blow everything up. Yeah. And, you know, the pendulum swings back and forth always in the world of education. And now, but now I think we have a lot of neuroscience has developed enough that we have research that shows what's happening in the brain when you're teaching a child how to learn how to read using phonics and yeah. that you can see what's happening in that phonics well, is the strategy that helps them learn how to read. I think it was important too um, earlier on, you know, when you were talking about play and, you know, you, there is um, training that goes along with learning how to manage a play-based classroom, right, as you, as you articulated. And so I do think, you know, one of the sort of unforeseen circumstances that happened in the pandemic is that we were asking parents, not not so much we at Presbyterian School, because we were we were back in school fortunately, you know, sooner than many of our public school peers, but asking parents to be teachers. Right. And parents are the first teacher for children, but there comes a point in time where the nerds of the world, like <laughs> you and I, need to take over right. and particularly with respect to literacy. And, and again, not to not to denigrate whole language or balanced right. literacy, but yeah, it's nice to have brain research say, yeah, there needs to be a phonetic component, uh, a, a very pronounced phonetic component to how we, how we teach kids how to read. Right, and there also has to be context and knowledge and vocabulary because decoding in and of itself doesn't result in comprehension. If I decode a word, I sound out the word C-A-T, cat, but I don't know what a cat is. It has done me no good whatsoever to learn how to decode. I feel that our philosophy at Presbyterian School has served us well in that we are immersing children in a rich language environment. There is a lot of knowledge building and vocabulary building going on that happens in our play-based curriculum. We also know that children need the phonemic awareness and the phonics as foundational learning literacy skills along with the vocabulary. So yeah. we're doing all of that in tandem. This year we have implemented a new curriculum in early childhood called Hegarty that is a phonemic awareness and phonics curriculum and it is aligned through 
and vertically planned through all three grade levels so that children are getting the foundations that they need to have so that when they arrive in kindergarten and we start to ask them to learn how to decode that we feel confident that they have gotten the foundational skills that they need to be successful. Yeah. I hope people appreciate like this is this is a pretty heady discussion of what really goes on behind the scenes in our early childhood classrooms. And I I mean I feel like because of where we're located in the heart of the city, a mile from Rice University and the the, the parents that send their kids here, I mean we have very intelligent, high achieving parents and I hope that they appreciate you're a very intelligent, high-achieving person. This is your passion. You've got academic background in it, and it's not like we just show up every day and and read to kids. Like there's there's heady work going on here. All right, so let me pivot. Last sort of last topic. You've you know you're every bit as much in the parenting business as you are in the literacy and the play business. And you mentioned you know you, your own kiddos were here in early childhood. Um, what do you like? What do you wish? I mean, you have captive audience. There's thousands of people in many, <laughs> many countries that listen to the listen to the podcast. What's a bit, of, a little bit of parenting advice that you might give to to our our parents who have children in early childhood? Maybe maybe a conversation that you find yourself having over and over again. And I, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but I think I mean, it's tough to be a parent today. There's a lot of pressure, fill in the blank for lots of different reasons. But what's what's something that in your role, not only as the head of early childhood, but as a parent of, of two pretty successful grown kids, what's some advice that you might give to some of our parents today? Well, I, and I think one of the things that just from my, just the perspective of being a parent and now having young adult children, you, you are doing the best that you know to do in the, in, in the moment in time that you know to do it. And so if you are coming from a place of love and you're you're doing the best you can and you're going to make mistakes i think that being open to hearing what people who are quote unquote experts you know your teachers your doctors that you know pediatricians things like that if they're giving you advice about kids i think that that's really being open to that is is helpful um and i think that we have gotten to where kids today in in our world we don't we're so worried about them achieving and, and you know, I think we, we have these high standards, which there's nothing wrong with having high standards, but realizing that in order to, to achieve and to grow and to learn that children have to fail at things. And I feel like we often swoop in and try to do it for them so that they don't fail or they don't have to feel uncomfortable even little things like when you're walking into school carrying your kid's backpack well they can carry their backpack and it may mean you have to walk a little slower takes a little longer and we're all in a hurry because we have other places we have to go so sometimes it's just easier to pick it up yourself and take it Um, but i say i'd say building in time for children to struggle and letting them struggle instead of swooping in and trying to fix it which is really hard sometimes to do i think training yourself to stop take a breath yeah let them struggle a little bit well, see I, if they can do it and the, i think that once else when you get used to that and children start to to get through those struggles on their own and you can see them take ownership and see them feel successful at something that they didn't think they could do 
that's so much fun to see. Yeah. No, I think I think what I hear you saying is, you know, a, um, it's it's okay to let your kids struggle a little bit. I mean, we don't want them to be in pain. No, <laughs> right? no, no, no. That's right. Not, definitely but, not. But it's okay for that. And then you have a lot of partners in certainly inside the building, beginning with you and the teachers. And yeah, you're you're not alone in that. And I think a lot of times when I talk to parents they feel like they're all alone. Like it's right. their responsibility to make sure that their child learns to walk, learns to read, learns to add, learns to do long division, you know? know. So, so that's great. That's a great message. You know, there's, there's beauty in, in, in the struggle and you're not alone. I think that's a, that's a great, and I would say from my own perspective as a parent, and then I've got a 16 year old who's nonverbal and is learning how to read. Right. And he's learned how to read at the age of 16, and it's it's so unbelievable to watch. Now, obviously, that's a very different journey than a lot of our, our parents, but, yeah, he's had to struggle a lot for a lot longer, and I know, like, I can't. I can't parent him without without help, and I right. think that's probably true for all of us, right? Yeah, I think we all need help in in, in some on some level, and you know, parenting. I I also say it's a marathon. You think you know, don't some of the things that you're fretting over when your child is three, four, five years old, and they are so big at the time, but when you get beyond it and you have a different perspective, you know, I. I long for some time, some of the things that I was worried about when they were three years old instead of yep. t- 25 years old. It's a, but each phase has its own, its own issues. And, and you just, as a parent, I think, have to grant yourself some grace. We tend to be really hard on ourselves as yep. parents and understand, particularly if you've chosen to be in this community, that we are here to support you. Yep. And we do mean that we are all together in, in the, you know, education and support of each child. Yeah. So. Look at you bringing at the that. mission Look in. Look at that. What a great way. Well, Lois, <laughs> this has been great. And, and I mean, I think one of my goals in, in this was, you know, we've been featuring, uh, you know, we have the people of PS podcast, but we've also been featuring program. And, and, you know, my goal with you was you really are such a great blend of both. I mean, this, you know, you're, you're uh, a person who really has cultivated this program you live it you know you say you're a nerd but I mean I think I want a nerd in that position (laughs) I want somebody who loves it who's reading who's challenging I love it I'd say probably once or twice a month I get a article from you that you send out to your faculty that's maybe it's about you know uh, different approaches to discipline in the classroom maybe it's about literacy maybe it's about play and so I love that we have a learner in your role I love that you love to learn that you don't mind talking about it and I'm glad that people kind of got a sense for you know the the intellect that it takes to to really be in charge of three and four and five year olds <laughs> surprising yeah, yeah but also that you you have an incredible soul and a heart for 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 these kiddos and um, we're very fortunate to have you in the role so thank you thank you I feel fortunate to be in the role it's great my dream job love all right it. good to know good to know <laughs>